Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. When I was looking for a publisher for a book I wanted to write, I was fortunate enough to have ended up with two offers, one from a large international media conglomerate and the other from Handspring, which was a small publisher in Scotland run by just four people with a love for great books and for our field. To this day, I'm glad I chose to go with them with Handspring because not only did they help me write the books I wanted to share with you, the Advanced Smile Fascial Technique Series, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. And Handspring was recently joined with Jessica Kingsley Publishers, Integrative Health Singing Dragon Imprint, where their amazing impact continues. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check their list of titles and be sure to use the code TTP at checkout. Thanks again, Handspring, for sponsoring the Thinking Practitioner podcast. And welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Thinking Practitioner. And welcome, Mr. Luca. Good to have you back here this week. Um, Good to be back. Right. Thanks for taking over last time. All right. All right. Good to see you again behind the microphone. And uh, you've been out yeah. on the road traveling a little bit, getting around doing some things, right? I was floating down a river. Oh, truth sure. be told. Okay. I was. This was a river trip in Utah where we put in in one spot and floated uh, down a canyon and took out at another many days. Later. Yeah, you were um, fantastic. five or six. How many days were you on the river out of? I think it was uh, six or seven, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Out of touch with the world. That must be very nice to get out and away from everything like that. Out of touch with the everyday world, very in touch with that world right there. That was That's right. really great. Yes. Yeah. But it's great to be back and I've been looking forward to this and having our conversation. Yeah. You had you had a topic you wanted to talk about. What is it? Whitney? Yeah, well, actually, this is kind today? of a follow-on up to uh, some of the um, uh, issues that we brought up in the previous episode of the uh, interview that I'd had with Sandy Fritz. But this is uh, there was a blog post that came out just a couple of days ago. Uh, Julie Onofrio had posted this um, post, this uh, blog post. Um, called the Continuing CE Conundrum in the Massage Profession. CE, of course, we're talking about continuing education. Um, and I thought that with you and I both as CE educators and providers for many years, uh, this would be a good opportunity for us to talk a little bit about some of the issues that were brought up in that blog post. She brought up some really interesting things uh, to look at. And, and I wanted to hear some of your perspective too on, on this as we look through the lens at the world of continuing education, continuing professional development in our fields from uh, the lens of the educators. Um, so uh, I thought it would be yeah. a good thing for us to chat about a bit. Though that is, a, you know, an area that, uh, well, affects me directly, like in full disclosure, yeah, you and I are both providers. But I know it's also an area you've, you care a lot about and you've put time in over the years. So I, I look forward to hearing what you think and what you had to say there. Yeah. So what's... What's the deal? What is the problem, if there is one? She says a conundrum, but what's what do you see? Yeah, I think there's a number of different problems, but one of the things that I wanted to kind of highlight, and this doesn't get talked about a great deal. You know, there's a lot of questions that people come up with when they when all these questions get asked about why do we need to do it? What's the purpose of continuing education? And in most other health professions, continuing education, which is frequently referred to as continuing professional development or CPD in a lot of other fields. But the idea in general is that we're trying to continue 
the professional development of practitioners and keep them up to date with uh, mm -hmm. recent findings, current research, that sort of thing. And there's a lot of you know, questions brought up about, well, a lot of the CE courses aren't really very current, you know, in terms of staying current with a lot of that stuff. So why mm -hmm. are people being forced to take these courses if they're not staying current with it themselves? And I think that's that's a very good question. But Okay. Yeah. Let me see if I get it so far. You're saying that the uh, sensible purpose of CE is to keep people up to date, but we don't have as you're saying it, mechanisms for keeping the content up to date. Yeah, you know so that achieving that purpose is that it. The CE educators, quite honestly, aren't held to any accountable standard for making mm -hmm. sure their course content is uh, up to date, valid, um, you know, reasonable. Basically, it's a pretty wild west sort of thing out there. Anybody can go teach anything they want to um, and say anything that they want to, and. Then you I know, didn't know that, by the way. I would have been saying a lot more stuff. If well, that, you got free reign. I'm, I'm joking. Perfect. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Give you permission. But you're but... saying there, yeah. No, it's. I agree with you in that there is very little input for in the approval process on the content itself. Yeah, uh, that's my experience. Is that what you're talking yeah. about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So basically, you know, saying that we're requiring people to get continuing education so that they can keep current and keep up to date, but there's no requirement that any of the education that they get is current or up to date. It's a little bit of a disconnect mm. for sure. Yeah. Okay. So interesting. Another thing I wanted to, yeah, oh, go ahead. Did you have another question? No, no. Okay. I was going to ask you, was there more? There's more. Yeah. Like so I wanted to continue on this a lot because there's a couple of things that I don't hear talked about very often that I think are an important part of the the view of continuing education in our field in particular. And I'm going to speak most specifically about massage therapy as a whole, uh, but I'm speaking to soft tissue manual therapists uh, in, in some other spectrums as well. But in particular in our field, uh, when you go through, um, well, first let's, let me backtrack just a moment and speak about practitioners who work in this field. A lot of times you don't realize this or think about this much, but uh, they can be direct access healthcare providers in a matter of less than a year. So let's say a massage therapy school training program is nine months long, maybe 600 hours or something like that. You can have a 19-year-old high school graduate go through that massage school training program and nine months later, they come out and they are a direct access healthcare provider, which means anybody can walk in off the street, call you up and make an appointment and come see you with any kind of medical condition around. And in my opinion, most of the people who come out of just that basic level of massage training program aren't trained to act in that capacity as a full-scale healthcare provider for a lot of the different complex things that people come up with. When you go through your massage school training program, it's an, a pretty, in most programs, it's a pretty intensive level program. And most students are just struggling to keep their heads above the water basically to be able to, um, you know, make it uh, through to their licensing tests. So, you know, they're they're trying to just make it through to the licensing test to be able to, uh, you know, get the, the grades that they need to, to, to get through and get their license. With that type of education, you don't really get to go into depth about what you're going to remember out of all that blistering amount of content that you studied when you got started. And so continuing education is also playing the role of reinforcing 
and reinvigorating a lot of what you learned in school. Even if you learned it in school, a lot of people will will forget a tremendous amount of what they studied because they only studied it to be able to pass the test. And so that's a that's a major factor there. Mm-hmm. So you're saying there's there might be sh- and you, as you see it, shortcomings in the preparation process. People aren't adequately prepared, you say, to be direct access healthcare providers, but then continuing education could conceivably fill that role Yeah, in theory. Yeah. Okay. So you're saying that not only is there maybe a shortcoming in our continuing, sorry, in our entry-level education process where we're putting people out as direct access healthcare providers, you say, without necessarily qualifying them for that, but that continuing education could play that role of helping people learn more about the real world and about the conditions their clients are coming in with, if only it was being implemented well. Yeah, and that that's that's a point that I really like to emphasize a great deal because the the thing that a lot of people don't really think about is is the piece that since since the massage school, the basic massage school training doesn't really prepare you to be dealing with a lot of the more complexities of things that you encounter working with people who have compromised health conditions, the continuing education courses end up filling that role. And so the thing that's, that's challenging is there is no set curriculum for what gets covered in continuing education courses. So now it's kind of the individual's choice of what they decide to take with their continuing education courses to determine what they're getting prepared for to be um, fulfilling some of these roles. So for for me, that's, a uh, again, a bit of a disconnect because we're not really giving organizational structure for what we're saying people really need to know. Okay. What would, uh, well, well, what's the downside of individual choice? The downside of individual choice is if there are things that people would need to know to work in certain types of environments, they may uh-huh. not choose those things. Um, the upside of personal choice is it really helps your education a great deal to be choosing things that you're interested in. And that's a good thing. You know, I think there's a lot mm-hmm. of great benefits to that. Um, uh, the, cha- the challenge is, you know, some people may not know what they don't know and know what their, where their weak areas are and things that they might need to be, you know, getting a little bit more polished on. This is really interesting. I have a confession to make. I went to an experimental elementary school. Mm -hmm. That might explain a lot of my (laughs) quirks. (laughs) I was an experiment back in the 70s where uh, the ideal was, and this was, uh, you know, some educational stuff that had been going on for a while, but it's just like kids need to learn what they're interested in. So let's just let them go. And basically our classrooms were, uh, we didn't have class times. We didn't have set subjects. We had all the resources and teachers there to help us, but we were encouraged and invited to explore the things we're interested in. And it was the seventies and it was free form and it was chaos. Now this was the debate back then. This is why it's coming back to me. Is it okay to let learners just follow their interests or do they miss things? Of course, the argument was, will these kids ever learn to read? And uh, I did. A lot of kids did, Uh but uh, you know, that's, that's the intrinsic kind of tension that's probably still existing in the educational spaces. What's the role of, following someone's interests of freedom of choice, as opposed to standards, requirements, consistency, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's a, it's a double-edged sword, I think, because uh, I'm a big advocate of personally directed learning. And, you know, I feel like a lot of my um, higher education uh, has been that way. You know, I have two unfinished master's degrees and I have never stopped learning um, since 
early, early on. So I'm, I'm very much motivated as an individual learner. And yet I also understand and recognize that there's a reason for curriculum structure in certain instances, because when people don't know what they don't know, you can't necessarily say, well, I'm going to go study this because you don't know that you need to know this kind of thing. So yeah. it's, it's a double-edged sword for sure. Is that the basic beef though with the Canadian education setup that you have? Is there's there's not the structure there that helps people know what they don't know? If we solve that, would it be good? Yeah, it would be better. Um, I don't know that it would be good. You know, I think there's there is uh, as as Julie pointed out in this blog post, there is a plethora of potential challenges and problems here running from you know the the fact of who's approving some of these courses, what are they approving? You know, they're approving courses that have very little to do with things that are really professional development and, you know, people feel like, you know, there are, you know, students that come in just to meet those requirements and they're not, not really paying attention. They're just clicking boxes to go through and get things done. Um, but, you know, to be honest, that also happens with entry-level education and, and, and things in other fields and other professions as well. So it's not, it's not solely to us for sure. Yes. And maybe, maybe, as a way to try to structure our conversation here, rather than just let it go freeform into that big list of of dissatisfactions a lot of us have with the CE setup, what let's maybe stay with this one for a second. How how would you see us uh, bringing in some more of that structure or clarity into what is required? What do you think would help there? Well, what I think would help. Um, is something that I've struggled with personally trying to figure out how to do logistically for a long time, which is uh, what would be ideal is if the individuals and or organizations who are approving courses and helping, you know, uh, put the rubber stamp of approval on the curriculum for continuing uh -huh. education courses knew something about education or knew something about the field. And oftentimes it's, people that are Goodness. in bureaucratic positions or offices that look at a check sheet and does, you know, does this course meet these particular things on a check sheet, but don't really, really look at what's going on in terms of, of what's being presented there in the content of the coursework. Because, you know, quite honestly, it's logistically uh, way, way unfeasible that that many courses could be reviewed by people without a very, very large team of people to to look at things. So. Okay, so maybe before we start narrowing down on solutions, we need to describe some of the barriers mm -hmm. to that happening. And you say one of them is just the logistics. Yeah. There's it's one. There's a a lack of educational background in the regulation sector. Mm -hmm. Two is logistically challenging. Just the quantity of monitoring that would need to happen. Yeah, in that way. Any other barriers to why this isn't already happening? Well, you know, there's there's barriers too in what people think is relevant. I mean, this is one of the big challenges that we oh. have is that, you know, the spectrum of soft tissue manual therapy is so incredibly diverse. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that say like, why can't I get continuing education credit for this Tai Chi class that I'm doing? Because mm -hmm. I feel like this is helping me learn some things about body mechanics and movement and energy, energy or something better, like that. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I think there's a legitimate argument there for the way that you might be working that could be uh, relevant to, to helping you continue your your psychosomatic learning process. Uh, 
it doesn't fit the model of what is, you know, required by state licensure boards oftentimes. So there's logistics of what, what does fall through and get approved as continuing professional development, you know. You're saying that there's it's, there's difficulty around getting a consensus around what is essential, yeah. the essential pieces. Yeah. And, you know, in some, in some cases, boards just write it, don't they? They just like, yeah. uh, you know, pull in a, a committee or a couple of people and write it. I, I, I got a personal story there, too. Uh, back, this is, must have been the early 90s when I was teaching at the Rolf Institute. I was part of the committees there that were coming together with different schools to form the NCB. Mm-hmm. And we were writing the quiz, essentially. We were, you know, each school, each stakeholder submitted different areas they thought were important, different question routes and things like that to basically come up with this standard that we were trying to come you know, invent. The argument then being, let's preempt someone else regulating us. Let's get a decent standard that we all can buy into. But it was very much an exercise in political collaboration more than educational design. Yeah. And that was useful. It really opened my eyes quite a bit to the other players in the field and to that kind of process. But the test, and I, this is so out of date that I'm even reluctant to share the story because it might be really different now. The test was the result of these different stakeholders, the different schools involved, saying, we think this should be tested for someone to be a yeah. practitioner out in the world. Mm-hmm. So then students would go take the test or practitioners rather would go take the test and go, what? I got asked all kinds of questions that I don't even yeah. Are, you know, don't even relevant to me. Why am I being asked that without that, without understanding that context that in order to get something, everybody needed a little bit of uh, representation in the final product. Yeah. And the way that that's generally done in true cred- credentialing processes is with, you know, some type of, um, you know, like what's called a job analysis survey, which is a survey that will go out to a very large percentage, hopefully of the profession and ask and get specific uh, specific competencies of what do you need to know to do this part of your job here? Because it's really difficult to ask people, especially, you know, educators, yeah. um, what do right. people need to know for this particular, because, you know, we'll start thinking, well, people need to know all this kind of stuff and think, and we start putting, yeah, put all this extra stuff in there. But, especially the subjects I teach. Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> Put it all in there. So you think you're saying start at the other end, start with a finished practitioner and reverse engineer their success yeah. and say, what, what is it they're doing that we need to make sure is represented in education? And then ideally, you know, that would be the, the guideline is that that should be reflected in the continuing education programs, those categories or areas of what people really need to know to continue their professional development or continue their, their education along those areas. But yeah, you know, the other flip side of that argument. And then, is, so wait, before wait before you get to the flip yeah. side, that's exciting because then we could even like, if we had that list, we could even go through and stage it over time and think these are appropriate for entry yeah. level. Mm-hmm. These are after you've been out in the world for a while. These might come later. Because yeah. honestly, as you and I and everyone else knows, you can't learn everything. You can't preload at all. Yeah. You need to get out there and have some context to even understand how to, what the next level is going to be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And another thing that I was going to mention here that it plays into this is that you know yeah. most of the continuing education requirements are set at the state licensure level for what yes. you know I mean there's some that are set for example if you are a nationally certified practitioner your requirements uh, to keep your national certification are set by by the national certification board but the the ones that most people are focusing on now are the ones for maintaining their licensure so the state board sets the number of hours required 
for that. And the state boards, you know, oftentimes make these guidelines about continuing education in relation to what they see as the primary things that are impacting licensure. Remember, the purpose of licensure is not to say that you're good. It's to say that you're mm -hmm. not going to hurt the public. So oh, okay. licensure is about public safety. And so the majority of complaints that licensure boards get are generally around ethics issues. And so those state licensure boards tend to emphasize the need for ethics training and things like that in continuing professional development. But, you know, the the thing that I always kind of go back to and saying, like, you know, because I'll say, well, we don't get, you know, there's not as many complaints about people getting hurt doing massage. So th that's not as much of an issue because not that many people are getting hurt. But the reality is, you're stealing my lines. I was gonna. I was going to bring that. Well, up. go ahead. Go yeah, it. go ahead and bring it up. And no, I'll, I'll bring it yeah. up. But what about the fact that there aren't, at least you know, proportionally speaking, there aren't huge numbers of complaints or evidence of people getting hurt. There is some for sure, uh, and often it is in this realm of ethics and boundary violations and things like that, as well as probably a good number of physical uh, injuries as well. But it, proportion to other uh, professions, and this is represented in our insurance rates, which are pretty low there isn't a ton of harm being done. Yeah. What about that? Yeah. Well, I think there isn't a ton of harm being done that rises to the level of people initiating insurance complaints. Uh, but I also have to, I look at this through the lens of a couple different things. Number one, there really isn't a good reporting process for somebody who gets hurt by a massage therapist. I mean, do they really go to the state licensing board or who do they go to to make a complaint? And one mm -hmm. of the reasons that I say that is that, you know, when I was doing a lot more in clinical practice, I'm working a lot with pain and injury complaints. So that was the main focus I was doing. But I had a lot of people come to me saying, yeah, they tried massage before, but their massage therapist hurt them. And so they're mm -hmm. really having trepidation about doing anything with massage again. So, and I asked, you know, well, did you do anything about that or report that or anything like that? And most of the time, no, uh -uh, I didn't do anything. So, well, of course, that never came up. For me as a rolfer, yeah, I'm sure about people getting hurt in rolfing. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's 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 true that I mean when I was at the Rolf Institute teaching there, one of the things I taught was the ethics uh, segment, therapeutic relationship class, and I was I inherited a curriculum which didn't make much sense to me, so I rewrote it based on my conversations with people, other teachers in the field, and then I went to the ethics board of the Rolf Institute and asked them about their complaints. And it was really an eye-opener for me to have those conversations with them and hear what was coming back. Again, it was pretty low. There weren't large numbers or anything, but the ones that were coming back really uh, emphasized the need for some training and things like boundaries. Mm -hmm. uh, it, was either, you know, it was either personal slash sexual boundaries or business practices yeah. that, that the were coming back about mm -hmm. and a bigger proportion. And that's represented, I know, in the massage world too, of sexual uh, boundary uh, infractions or violations or offenses in terms of the client getting offended, even if inadvertent on the practitioner's side. Yeah. So there's, that's really is an area where we, we need mechanisms. We need training. We need, uh, to be monitoring ourselves because it's not natural just to understand how somebody else perceives what we're up to. Yeah. Or it's not natural to see all my own blind spots yeah. as a person. Yeah. And uh, the, our only hope there is really some awareness and some clear uh, guidelines and some ongoing 
review and reporting mechanisms, all those things. Yeah. You know, I, I may ruffle some feathers saying something like this, but, you know, there's, I think most schools go into teaching ethics issues pretty yeah. thoroughly and comprehensively with what they're doing. I mean, some of them right. don't do it right. real thoroughly, but a lot of them do. And so the idea that we should be emphasizing ethics in continuing education the problem is not that people don't know enough about ethics. Yeah, yeah. The problem yeah, is yeah. we have a lot of people who have ethics issues that should maybe not be working in this field. Well, you know? or it's it's not a question of lack of information. Yeah. That's right. Because part, I did, it wasn't a second career, but it was an occasional job I would get of being called in as a consultant to spas and uh, schools and institutions where there had been some sort of ethical issue come up. Mm -hmm management, you know, proactively was saying, let's give our people some training. Yeah. And it was never the case that they didn't know, oh, don't do that. Yeah. That was never. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, it was uh, upon me as a teacher, consultant, whatever, to think about ways to highlight the blind spots and help people look at them. And uh, it's a, it's, yeah, just throwing ethics courses at the situation doesn't always make it better because everyone knows the answers. It's more like, how do we live it? How do we wake up to the things we don't usually think about? Yeah. How do we understand the other points of view? Yeah. So I have yeah. a question I would like to ask you and, and from your sure. perspective, from, you know, you and I have been doing this a close to a similar amount of time in terms of, of teaching on the CE circuit there. I think if we combine the number of years, it would rival a giant sequoia. In it would, almost. of course, yes. And in, in massive impact as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe in self-important. In the earlier days, and I'm, I'm talking now like late 80s, early 90s kind of time. When, when Ancient we prehistory, yeah. yeah. When there weren't as many uh, CE requirements, um, uh -huh. and because there weren't as many states that had licensure at that point, um, talking about the wild west yes, yeah yeah my perceptions at least for the students who were coming into classes at that time i had a much larger percentage of people who were coming into classes because they really wanted to continue their learning and they wanted to learn more about this kind of stuff and as more uh -huh. state licensure came on board and more and more people had to get requirements the percentage of people who were coming to classes because they had to get a CE class and I happened to be in the neighborhood during the time which their thing was coming up for renewal, that number yes. was going up. And I'm curious if you yes. saw any similar trends or things like that, or do you get those kinds of folks in your classes? Uh, you're talking about the carrot or stick yeah. phenomenon. Are people coming because what we offer is so interesting and they're just curious and they naturally want to go move towards it? Or are they coming because... A state board, whomever is is has a stick over them, say you got to do this. Uh, it's really interesting teaching around the country and then teaching abroad internationally. Mm -hmm. We're going in and out of places where there's different requirements and just getting you know not a scientific by any means, but an uh, experiential feel for the skill level and motivation level of the practitioners in those different areas. And I I I don't tend to like sticks. Maybe it's back to my elementary school educational experiment where it was all carrots. There yeah. were no sticks. And that was chaotic, but it worked for me. Mm -hmm. So I think I tend to favor sticks. And I, I like to think that people come to my classes because it's so interesting and cool and fun. Yeah. Now, uh, by the way, say, you, you said you prefer sticks. Did you mean carrots? Did I say that? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah thank you. Okay. No, I prefer carrots. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 
and I, you know, I like to think people are coming because they want the carrot, yeah. not because someone's forcing them to. Yeah. Um, and I bet it's that way. For Have you classes. seen Let's... more people in your classes because of sticks? Do you think, or yeah. has that changed at all? It depends on the location. Yeah, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Right. I mean, there's nothing like going to a state with a renewal deadline. You know, a month or two before that deadline, it's like all of a sudden, oh my god, there's more people in this class than I've ever seen before. Everyone needs to get their yeah. uh, re requirement done. They all have that stick. Yeah. Some are texting in the back row, sure. Mm -hmm. But you know, that's. I also taught high school, mm -hmm. right? And so they're all there yeah. in high school. They're there because of the stick, for goodness sake. Yeah. And then it's up to me to have fun with that or not. Yeah. And so I had to figure that one out and maybe some of those skills still apply. Mm -hmm. It's like, we're going to be locked in this classroom together for the next hour. We might as well enjoy it somehow. Come on. Yeah. And that's, there's a way to work with that. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's so true that when the, the requirements are in place, the, uh, the practitioner engagement is somewhat different. Maybe I see it more Whitney, honestly, maybe I see it more, in like an in-service uh, job where people are required by their employer to be at a training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even then, even then we generate some excitement and there's people there that are so into yeah. it, but maybe there's a higher percentage of people texting in the back row in those employer mandated trainings than there are in the self-paid ones. Yeah. And that fits with a lot of what we know about, uh, you know, if you put some skin in the game, you're more likely to get something out of yeah. it. But it's it's also interesting because again I was going to say me being having this experimental carrot orientation not stick orientation, I would tend to say let's just let it go. Like Colorado here has no continuing education requirements where I live. Mm -hmm. Oregon has pretty strict ones, mm -hmm. you know, compared to, to the spectrum yeah. that exists in the U.S. Uh, I go to Oregon and they're actually I got to confess there is a different level of shared language, of familiarity, of currency with the material. Mm -hmm. And of general uh, consistency of skill, yeah. Because I think standards or not, people are being required to stay engaged in the learning process. Yeah. I do notice a difference when I go to states where there's none, no requirements. Yeah, so, I just do as a teacher. So, if to ask the question, do you think CE is necessary? Would you fall on one side of that fence or the other based on that? We started the the conversation of what's wrong with CE. Yeah. But maybe this question of is it necessary is really a a bigger one that we should answer. Yeah. Is it necessary? I mean, Colorado's doing great, I think, for body work. Mm -hmm. And we don't have continuing education requirements. You just, you have to get registered and then you're done. Mm -hmm. So is it strictly necessary? No. Is there an advantage? Uh, I think so. Yeah. I, well, maybe it's different. Maybe is it necessary and should it be required or different questions too? Because mm -hmm. as a, as a, somebody who is a teacher and learner just for, I mean, I, I like do puzzles. I read uh, academic articles for frigging entertainment. Mm -hmm. That's just me, you know? Yeah. So I'm like into that stuff. I just enjoy uh, learning for its own sake. So of course it would be uh, important, I would think. I'm biased. Yeah. And, I, and I work in that field. That's what, you know, pays part of my paycheck. Yeah. But is it um, necessary? Can you run a state without it? We have some that are doing okay. Yeah. And I, I guess the question comes know. down to, you know, when I ask that question of myself and, and just out of yeah, curiosity, um, I, I come down on both sides of it at different points. Like, like you said, yes, you uh, are doing okay in Colorado without it. Mm. Then the question is, but could we actually be doing better if we had it? Yeah. You know, would that make things yeah. better? 
And, you know, you know, it's, when you're comparing different regions, there's that is a factor to consider. But, you know, I've looked at this whole thing with with geography um, uh -huh. about Oregon and, you know, the quality and the training that I see in different parts of the country when I travel around like you do. Um, yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I don't personally think that it's just about continuing education requirements in the Pacific Northwest. I think a lot of it. Do you it think has, it's the climate? No, what do you think it is? It's, it's yeah, I think it's a, yeah, not the climate, but I think it is, it, it goes back to um, entry-level training strongly uh, influenced by the laws in Washington because uh, this is the most progressive state in terms of promotion of massage therapy into the healthcare arena in the country. Uh -huh. And consequently, the yeah. training for massage therapists at entry level to get into doing that. I mean, they, they were been, you know, very much on the forefront with, you know, insurance reimbursement and the recognition of massage as a healthcare practice and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. It really is much closer to integration into the tra traditional healthcare system. And as a result, a lot of the entry level training um, in, in the schools was oriented toward that. So I think you build a better foundation to begin with and there's more mm -hmm. of that kind of thing uh, present when people get to farther, you know, farther on levels of their their professional development. So Washington has, you said, is the most progressive state in terms of integration into conventional healthcare yeah. of massage. And I know that they have lots of uh, insurance uh, provisions and things like that that really allow that to happen yeah. in an amazing way. It's an, you know, it's certainly one. an interesting uh, geographical thing to to look at and I've, I've pondered about this oftentimes because sitting here in Oregon uh, and, yeah. and right in the center of the state actually it's, it's kind of an interesting fence striding thing because down south of us in California it's kind of a wild west of education and things are all over the map and very loose requirements for many years from many instances no requirements because you know, it's California it. you know it's it's interesting to see the the difference in those two uh, kinds of approaches and the way it's if impacted the the field as a result of that. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's an interesting paradox, interesting quandary or dialectic there between yeah. the two points of view. Uh, okay, so let's say CE is as is valuable. Let's say that the that p the practitioners are observably better when they live in a place with good foundation education and or good you know uh, defined requirements for continuing education. How do we uh, make that happen in a way that doesn't kill the diversity, the creativity? That doesn't where we don't kill each other trying to come to a compromise, you know, come to a consensus around what is important. Yeah. How do we put these things into practice? Yeah, it's you know, I think this this is a really good question, and it gets into some big logistical challenges because we, you know, are we talking about large scale bureaucratic systems that are going to make more rules and, you know, more kind of guidelines and things like that? I don't think anybody's terribly excited about that idea. No. Um, I, I, like you, am, am one that would much rather see people move towards something than get pushed towards it. Um, and I, yeah. you know, always am looking for those kinds of strategies especially from an educational perspective that might be more in the direction of, of leaning on uh, encouraging people to want to do continuing professional development because they see a connection yeah. between that and being more successful in the practice and being more well-rounded as an individual and all those other kind of things that I think can come out of that. So um, yes, I, I would love to see more of that kind of thing happening, but, you know, again, and not to kind of 
point fingers or or you know speak differently about different kinds of things but i i do think that there's differences in things that really go back before massage school too in terms of like how is how is the k-12 education system in these different parts of the country you know and and how does the preparation of people coming into the field even before they even start their massage education some of these kind of foundational things playing a, a role in that and and you see wide diversity of backgrounds and some people really like you um you know experimentally pushing the envelope for your own education and things like that or were they just in an educational system that was just barely meeting the requirements and not doing anything really so they never really learned how to be learners you know those I think a, a lot of those things play into the equations that come up uh, with people. But, you know, back to your question of like, how do you create a system or structure to do something like that? I think if we knew the answer to that, um, you know, I'd have been working <laughs> have on happened. that a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Yes. All right. Mm -hmm. This is good. Mm -hmm. This is important. Uh, it's important to imagine what we want. It's important to name what we're not happy with. And to acknowledge the limitations, you know, that maybe uh, are perpetuating those things yeah. as well. Yeah. So if we take the flip side of that, you know, we've talked about a lot of the problems, okay. you know, yeah. with CE. What do you yeah. think are some of the, the big benefits or, or, you know, what happens that, that really is beneficial with why this is, why this is a good thing? I mean, like, I'd like to think it's a good why thing, you know, like that CE is a good thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's one of the most common, I'm just brainstorming a little bit here, but one of the most common things I hear is that people appreciate coming together with their practitioners. Mm -hmm. That that's, and that's my kind of uh, closet assumption. My working hypothesis is that body workers, individual practitioners come to these continuing education workshops good continuing education workshops for a sense of community mm -hmm. collegiality getting around other professionals in their field and there's nothing like it there's nothing like sitting around and topping yeah i'm sorry talking shop yeah about something or just hanging out and understanding the challenges and solutions that people come up with in their field it's just a great experience too to be able to do that and often continuing education is the place workshops is where that happens yeah right now your your blog post said maybe there's other ways to do that sure but but this is still something people get in a good continuing education environment is some interaction yeah. with a professional i mean you can say well there's a lot of different ways to network with your professionals and that is true yeah. but when you're in the environment where the purpose of your being in that environment is to grow your skills you know to look at different things and uh i mean i, I i've been incredibly fortunate i think for many years of having learned so much from my students yeah. in ce workshops of things that i was um, sharing with people and having people share in the classroom you know i've i've learned mm -hmm. so many things um from from those kind of environments so i do think it is a, a very rich um environment to to continue and just you know getting out of the room yeah. getting out of the treatment room and being in, in a, you know, a socially engaging and, ex, you know, mind expansive type of environment is, is really important. I think that's, that's really valuable. Um, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, and those are good. And, and then I got one that's, it's, it is being pushed to do something you wouldn't just come up with on your own. Yeah. That's what being around other people does, but also being in an educational system, being a, learning something new involves like 
letting go at least a little bit of what you know already yeah. and opening up some space and possibilities for a new way of doing things, which I think is actually a really exciting and agonizing moment in, in anybody's life when they start to uh, surrender a level of mastery over something and open up to a higher level of understanding and embodiment. Mm -hmm. Cause it's, it is, um, it's just something exciting that about that to me is there's so many possibilities and so much agitation all at once yeah. that come up for people right there in the classroom or right there at the table mm -hmm. in a way when they're being asked to do something just a little bit differently. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to see, and this is my personal belief and feeling, you know, I would love to see yeah. some other types of things changing in, in terms of what is emphasized and or required along the, the continuing education realm to, okay. to get a little bit away from such an emphasis on, you know, techniques being what people need to learn more of. I think there's a lot of value in learning new technique approaches and new things to do and new ways to look at things. But when it becomes the emphasis of you need to do this kind of thing, when a lot of what the missing skills are for people might be more complex thinking, reasoning skills, uh, you know, more um, different ways to, you know, theoretical perspectives and things like that. Um, I'd like to see a greater acceptance of that as valuable continuing professional development and and not just, I have to go, you know, yes. I have to go learn a new technique um, and learn something new to do with my hands kind of thing. Well, you're talking to the guy who has techniques in his modality name. But that doesn't mean um, that that's not valuable. Like that's not, you know, that's not all you're <laughs> teaching though. You know, that's. No, yeah. no. And the truth be told, the, the word techniques and the techniques they offer are the carrots. Yeah that get people into that conversation yeah. where really the hidden agenda is to shift their worldview and help exactly. them start to, yeah. like you said, clinically reason in a different mm -hmm. way, look, look for things and use the information they're getting in novel ways yeah. and connect more deeply with the client and have more effective outcomes yeah. with the clients, yeah. that kind of thing. I think more of what I was trying to, to get at is and this gets kind of into, you know, talking about some of the marketing things where, you know, the, oh, yeah. Let's talk about the, the marketing of, you know, use my new technique and this will, you know, get all your clients better in, in two treatments kind of thing where it's, it's the, the nothing. Yours but, does that too, by the way. What's that? Yours does that too. Oh yeah. I thought that no, was one, mine. one treatment actually. That's why it's <laughs> oh, better. Dang, I better, I better double down <laughs> okay. on my marketing yeah. at least. Yeah, no one treatment is all it takes. Half a treatment. Actually, okay. I get results halfway through the first treatment session. Perfect. <laughs> Good. Perfect I, and permanent I get results. results when people book. <laughs> <That's right>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but so you're talking about marketing. I get I results think? when people just think about coming to class. Oh, and that's no, why nobody's coming to class it. anymore. So. <laughs> oh, okay. That's it. I'll have to think about it. Marketing, spin the spin on that aspect of results yeah. at first. What were you going to say about it before I rudely No, just that, just that that becomes the drive for so many of these classes in terms of the way that they're promoted. You know, I've got this particular thing that's going to make everybody better, huh. you know. Um, and huh. I'm all about people you know, learning new techniques, methods, and things to do. Like, I love going to technique classes as well. It's more about the way in which some of that is sometimes framed that gets under my skin a little bit more. Yeah, you know, I'm with you on that. Yeah. And... 
there's I think we're talking about one another one of those philosophical dialectics and uh, yeah. essential tension that exists between competing forces yeah. that keep life so rich. One is yeah, as an educator, and I I was a very dedicated educator for at least a couple of decades, maybe more, where I really my thinking went like this. I really see what people are lacking and it isn't what they want to learn. It really yeah. is this structured system of of uh, X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. And if people only had that, they would deepen their skill tremendously. Mm -hmm. That's the educator talking. Yeah. Then I went off on my own and did my own uh, enterprise and would offer these things. And guess what? Almost nobody would come yeah. except right. unless it named a technique. Yeah. Or named a condition. Yeah. Well, and so that was sort of the carrots. And so then it's like, okay, geez, now how do I, what, how do I redraw my Venn diagram so that the set of things that I think people need and the set of things they're willing to come and pay for yeah. can overlap a little bit? Yeah. And that's an excellent point that you bring up there. And I think a great deal of value in terms of having th things framed in that certain direction because sometimes, you know, you need to, there needs to be a hook of inspiration. Yeah for why should I go do this? And that's, that's Absolutely. where we talk about like, you know, learn these techniques and you will get better and you will be more successful in your practice and you're, you know, have you know better client outcomes and all those kinds of things. And secretly, I'm not going to mm. mention to you, but we're going to teach you a lot of really great things about, you know, how to think, how to view, how to you know, look at this from a philosophical perspective. And that's going to really help you a lot, but I'm not going to talk about that because that's not going to solve that's so great. I still remember a student coming up to me during a break early on. She was looking at me askance on the side of her eyes. She says, I see what you're doing. You're like teaching us these techniques, but you're asking us to work really differently. I get yeah. it. I was like, you busted. You got <laughs> me. But Don't she was tell the rest of the fun. class. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but it's, I think that's as a mark, as an, as an entrepreneur, as somebody who has an enterprise, uh, I think my shit, my I've had to shift. Mm -hmm. I've had to say, what will, does the market respond to? Yeah. And then it's, how do I not just sell my soul to meet that? Yeah. How do I do something that's still meaningful and I believe in and excites me? Yeah. And yet the market gets excited about too. And there is a, fortunately, there is an overlapping set of those things. It's not always what I'm most interested in at the moment. Mm -hmm. I might float a trial balloon and again, nobody comes. Yeah. I fly, I float a bunch of balloons and three of them go. And then I put more energy into those. And over the years, that's been really satisfying. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah. that's a really good point. It's, it's kind of similar to, um, you know, to some degree, it's like clickbait on social media. You know, uh -huh. you got to have a compelling title to make something want to click on, say somebody to want to click on something to look into it. Yeah. And so, yeah. and the, the, the key is that, make that interesting, but also make it, make it deeper when they click onto something or they decide to sign up or whatever, they're going to get a rich educational experience. It's going to be actually a lot more than what you just said it was going to be. So we've just described a political dialectic here too, or, or, or one that gets played out in politics. Yeah. That is the tension between let's design a society, a regulatory structure that ensures that good things happen and bad things don't happen. Yeah. On one hand, and the other, on the other hand, let's trust the wisdom of the marketplace and the rightness of what is selling, in a sense, to reflect some sort of realness and organic demand and need in the, in the culture. Yeah. So there's that. Is, there's always that fight and that balance, like from the individual to say, well, let's let the market decide. You know, we're like, well, uh -huh. 
I don't have a great deal of faith in the market's decision to make good choices anymore. <laughs> I think I know. can't argue that I do. Yeah. I can't argue that I do. Yeah. And yet there is something about being able to the let's say evolution, the way that the marketplace evolves different offerings yeah. into a more refined and, and precise and interesting state for better or worse. Yeah. I mean, that's essentially what algorithms have speeded up this evolutionary process of getting more interesting. Yeah. Right. And we can see that that goes to absurd levels because what people respond to isn't always what makes for a great a life or culture, yeah. you know? Right. But uh, there does needs to be enough of a carrot there. It needs to be enough of that spontaneous interest for people to even invest the time and energy and money. Mm -hmm. I remember, uh, maybe I told you the story, Whitney, but I remember sitting on a train. It was probably 1993 or four next to a guy, Ben Dean, who was running us an early prototype of an online education system where he was teaching classes by teleconference. Mm -hmm. And I had a t-shirt on that said Rolfing, something about Rolfing. And he goes, Rolfing, I know about that. Tell me about that. So I told him I was a Rolfer and that I taught at the Rolf Institute. And he goes, you know, you could do that on a teleconference. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? But he did. He proceeded to lay out a way to take parts of that educational experience out and do it by lecture at that point on teleconferences. Mm -hmm. And it was the prototype for what really built my online learning stuff too. Yeah. So, but his, anyway, I brought him up because his whole premise was people need a way to rationalize their educational choices to their pocketbook. Mm -hmm. It's going to have to make money to them. It have to make money for them or make, they have to be able to rationalize that it's a good investment for the money. Yeah. But mostly they need to enjoy it or it needs to excite and inspire them. Yeah. That's what's going to get them to actually pull the wallet out. Yeah. They have to rationalize it to their wallet, but it has also has to be interesting. Enough. Yeah. And I think, you know, too many people rely on, you know, grad way exaggerated marketing claims to try to get people excited to pull the wallet out there. And then, you know, they, they're trying to sell a, you know, a, a bigger piece of pie than, than, than really is available there. So um, that's, that's when we see things that, could be better, I think, in the way that continuing education is positioned and 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 talked about for the future. Do we need a federal trade commission of continuing education advertising? Truth and advertising? Oh man. Do we need more bureaucracy? <laughs> yeah. And, and I'd say, you know, now that we have uh, described and solved all the potential problems for continuing education, we've also come up with all these great solutions. Now we just need to create an organization that will implement and force all these things to happen, right? That's the answer. Yeah. There's so much work that's been done on this quandary over the years. So many, and you included, have put in so many hundreds and thousands of hours yeah. into trying to advance the profession in these directions. And you're acutely aware of the difficulties, but you know that that are there. But I just want to thank you for all the time you've put in, and you, you and your colleagues, mm -hmm. to getting us to where we are. You know, for the advantages we have, because it's so different than it was. You know, when you and I started. Yeah. So, well, thank you for that acknowledgement. And it does, uh, you know, it, that is a labor of love. I mean, I love education and I do really want to try to see how can we make things better. And uh, like anything, you know, it's it's certainly got its problems, but there's there's a tremendous amount of, of I think, excitement and enthusiasm about what we can do uh, in the teaching process with continuing professional development to make people better, make people better practitioners and you know, my overall goal behind all the things that I'm doing 
uh, in the big picture is to help find ways to decrease pain in the world. And that's kind of, you know, like we'll do our little piece to get there at least. Is there an action that you would like people to take if there's listeners out there going, okay, this is all interesting, but what what can I do? You should come to our courses. <laughs> that's the best action. <laughs> Yeah. This was a long infomercial that you didn't realize. You didn't see coming, but here it yeah. is. Here's the rub. Yeah. Ah, I don't okay. know. Um, you know, maybe uh, speak up, get vocal. Um, I always want to hear from the, the real professionals out there. What do you like learning about? You know, what do you want to uh, learn more about? What would what would juice you? You know, what would really get you uh -huh. excited to want to spend your money, to want to open your wallet up and and pursue and advance your professional development further, you know, and what carrots would you be yeah. willing to actually go for? Yeah. If we yeah. could talk about doing things more from the carrot perspective and less from the stick perspective, what, you know, what would people really go for? I'd, I'd always love to hear more of that kind of thing. So, mm -hmm. I like it. yeah. Anything else you want to, I think that's probably Anything? enough damage on that topic for, <laughs> for the day. Um, but, you know, it's, again, something that I, I think we all have to kind of grapple with, uh, or not all, but most of us who have requirements that are made to us, who are thinking about, you know, should I do this course? Shouldn't I do this course? What kind of things will help me really in, in my career? And and my um, sort of clarion call to, other, to the other educators out there is let's try to continue raising the bar to make education more enticing and less about a stick, mm. you know, more carrots. Uh, Maybe that's the title of this episode, more carrots, less sticks or something like that. Perfect. Yeah. You got it. I'm into okay. it. Well, on yes, that note, do wanna... we thank our sponsors? We will. So um, our uh, sponsor here, closing sponsor today is Books of Discovery. And uh, Books of Discovery has been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years. And thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. In these trying times, this beloved publisher is dedicated to helping educators with online-friendly digital resources that make instruction easier, more effective in the classroom or virtually. Books of Discovery likes to say learning adventures start here. They see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and they're proud to support our work, knowing we shared the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession. Check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com, where Thinking Practitioner listeners, that's you, can save 15% by entering thinking at checkout. We would like to say thank you to all of our sponsors and also especially to you, the listeners. Thanks for hanging out with us and hope we've uh, expanded the space between your ears a little bit today. You can stop mm -hmm. by our sites for show notes, transcripts, and extras. Uh, you can find that over on my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. Until where can people find that for you? Advanced-trainings.com. If there are questions, guests, topics, or things you want to hear us talk about, we'd love to hear from you. Just email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media under our names. My name is Till Luca. What's your name? Today, my name is Whitney Lowe. You can find me over there on social media that way. Um, if you will, take a moment out to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It does help other people find the show. We appreciate you letting us know how we're doing here. And you can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you happen to listen. So please do share the word, tell a friend, and we'll look forward to another great conversation here again in two weeks. See you All then. right, we'll see you then. Take care.